0: Uh, Well, good evening, it's good to see you this evening, it's uh, good to be here with you, Uh, good to be with God's people uh, here in Rosenberg, Um, and uh, I'm encouraged by your presence here this evening um, as you uh, work together and labor together here for the Lord's kingdom and await the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, I've never been to Rosenberg uh, before. Um, I have to admit, uh, before uh, my friend Eddie moved down here, I really hadn't even heard of Rosenberg, um, so I, when he told me he was moving to Rosenberg, I, I really didn't know where that was, uh, even though I am, actually my hometown's a little bit north of Houston, Cold Spring, Texas, I don't even know if y'all know where Cold Spring is, I was born in Conroe, um, a lot of my family's from Cut and Shoot, if you know where Cut and Shoot is, maybe I shouldn't mention that, um, but so this is, this. what's that, Dripping Springs is southwest of Austin, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Drip and spring it's actually drip, right? So drip is what I was told to call it anyways. Um, but it is it is good to be here with you. It seems like a ni- a very nice community, a growing community, as is a lot of uh, parts of our state. And uh but I I've counted a joy to be I forgot that Payton where are you Payton? Oh, I forgot that Payton worships here. I know Payton, he worships with us in dripping springs occasionally and uh, so it's good to see him. A familiar face here with us, and uh, and Megan as well. So it's good to see her. Um, Robert Johnson was considered, is considered, uh, one of the greatest blues guitarists of the 20th century. And maybe you've heard of him. In fact, Rolling Stones ranked him fifth in a list of 100 of the greatest of all time. But some would say that Robert Johnson's fame was ill-gotten gain. Because there was a legend that went with his notoriety. And that was that Robert Johnson had sold his soul to the devil. Now, more accurately, as the story goes, he was told to go to a crossroads where the devil tuned his guitar for him. Now, Johnson didn't deny these stories. In fact, he he played it up quite a bit to kind of spread his notoriety and spread his fame but it gained even more attention and more substance, if you will, when he died from a mysterious death at the young age of 27. Now, while many of us this evening might not view our battles with Satan as serious a transaction as Johnson's, Scripture does present temptation and sin as an opportunity for evil to usurp dominion over us. And for wickedness to usurp dominion over us by extorting our weaknesses and our desires for pleasure and for power and for possessions. Now, before we became Christians, succumbing to temptation and and living by personal desire was the way of life. Paul talks about that in Romans 6 and verse 20. He says, you are free in regards to righteousness, meaning there was not really a concern for righteous living or, or righteous desire. That was the way that you lived before Christ. But when we accept and follow Jesus and we become his, his disciples, uh, as you know, we are called to live a holy and sanctified life, a set-apart life for the purposes and for the service of God. As we submit to the Word of God and we are perfected in the image of, of Jesus... But here's the problem, and I'm sure that you know this problem. The problem is is that those desires, those temptations that we experienced before we became Christians, uh, they don't just end overnight. They just don't die that easily. There's a battle there. There's a struggle. And sometimes we fall back into old habits. And when we do sometimes fall back into those habits, we begin to ask ourselves, Is it even really possible to overcome temptation? Is it really even possible to live a righteous life, to live a godly life, to conquer a particular sin that maybe we've struggled with for a while? And I think that one of the greatest deceptions that we often believe about sin and temptation is that we can't help but give in. See, temptation and sin likes to convince us that we have to give in to that temptation, that we have to give in to that sin in order to be happy or, or, or in order to, for, for whatever reason. And the reason is, is because that has become a habit of practice, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and following, and talking about the habit of sin that the sons of disobedience are in. And so we fall back into those, those patterns. But as John reminds us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, He that is in you is what? Greater than he that is in the world. And so I I come to tell you this evening, and and maybe you know this, but just to remind you that the spirit of Jesus that dwells within his people is a spirit of victory and conquering. It is not a spirit of defeat. It is not a spirit of defeat. And because of that, this evening, we've been talking about walking in the steps of Christ or following in the steps of Christ. And tonight, I want us to talk about following in the steps of Christ and overcoming temptation. And what I want us to do is I want us to turn to Luke chapter 4, the temptation scene that is there in Luke chapter 4. I want us to look at the text together. And then I want us to um, examine some practical application for our life. Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 13. Verse 1 of Luke 4, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during these days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, Him only shall you serve. For this temptation is the wilderness. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the wilderness is the place where devils wander. But it's also the place where prophets are called, as we've already seen in Luke's narrative with John the Baptist. But what this reminds us of, or at least I think what it should remind us of, is the 40 years, not forty days, but the 40 years of of wilderness wandering that tested the Israelites. After being delivered from Egyptian slavery, they were baptized in the Red Sea, only to be tested for 40 years in the wilderness. That's how Scripture frames that period of Israelite history. It was a testing ground. And it was a test, mind you, as you may remember, that they fell pretty pretty dramatically. But now Jesus, as the embodiment of Israel, has been baptized and is tested on the other side of his baptism. But in contrast to the Israelites, he succeeds where they failed. And so here we are seeing Jesus as the beginning of his true Messiahship, the one who embodies what God desires of Israel. Okay, He is the embodiment of Israel, and you see that in the prophecies of Isaiah in which the servant who is acquainted with sorrow and grief is seen as the embodiment of God's people. What we see in Jesus is what God desired from Israel. And He is taking upon Himself the mantle of Messiahship in this. Now, interestingly enough, maybe you kind of skip over this part, but interestingly enough, it is the Spirit uh, which guides Jesus into the wilderness, as you notice in verse 1. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Matthew emphasizes this as well in Matthew chapter 4. Now, it was not the Spirit that tempts Jesus. We know that God cannot tempt anyone with evil, as James says in James chapter 1 and verse 13. But it is the Spirit that leads him to the wilderness and to the place of testing. And the purpose being that he cannot become, as we'll notice in a moment, he cannot become the Messiah and the Son of God, rather, not. he is the Son of God. He cannot become the high priest later on that we desire unless he can truly, as the Hebrews writer talks about in Hebrews 4 and verse 15, sympathize with our weaknesses. And so this is a necessary part of his vocation as the Messiah. Interestingly enough, he will later tell his disciples to pray, pray not that you be led not into temptation. Okay? Now, he doesn't say that God would tempt them, but he says, pray that you won't be led into this point, this, this period of testing or trial. And that could mean a variety of, of different things. Um, but, but interestingly enough, there are times in our life when we are brought into the wilderness of testing, right, in which God uses difficult circumstances, or whatever it may be, to strengthen our faith and to discipline us to be more children of God. But this, this, this setting is also set within the context of, of two previous truth claims that were declared about Jesus in chapter 3. And those two truth claims are this. Number one, that He is the Son of God. He was baptized in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And as soon as He comes up, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, and the voice comes from heaven and says what? You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You are my Son in whom I am well pleased. I have set my favor upon you. So this is a declaration of Jesus as the manifestation of God's son. He is God's Son. So that's that's the proclamation number one. The proclamation number two that's made in chapter three is at the very end of chapter three, after the genealogy, in which it says in chapter three and verse thirty eight, that he is that Adam, that he is a son of Adam. Okay? He Luke traces interestingly enough the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, who he then, by the way, this is a whole other interesting facet, says is the Son of God, right? He says Adam is the Son of God. Now, there's going to be some connections here between Adam and Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. But those are the two proclamations that were made in Luke chapter 3, that he was the Son of God and that he was the Son of Man or the Son of Adam. Okay, so those are the two truth claims that are being referred to, and now those two declarations about Jesus are being put to the test in chapter 4. Okay, Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Son of Man? Because if he is the Son of God, he should have powers that display that, at least from Satan's perspective. And if he is the Son of Adam, then that means he can fall. And so both of these aspects are going to be tested by Satan, by the accuser. Literally what Satan means, the accuser. And notice that Satan begins his temptations by saying, if you are, what? The Son of God. Why is he saying that? Because he is contesting what was proclaimed about him in chapter 3. If you really are what God is claiming you are. And the implication is, again, that he's also the Son of Man, so he can fall, at least from this perspective. And in this, Satan is goading Jesus. He is goading Jesus into using his role as the Messiah for self-serving purposes, for power, for possessions, and for pleasure. And I think in this what we see is that temptation is a selfish enterprise. Sin is a selfish enterprise in which we we make ourselves the means of our own happiness instead of trusting and allowing God to fulfill our desire. That is the question that is being asked here. What kind of Messiah is Jesus going to be? Is he going to be the one who trusted in his own ability to fulfill his own desires, or is he going to submit his purposes to the Father? But also this, and sometimes we might fail to recognize this, but Satan must realize, as I mentioned, he must realize that there is some possibility of failure. Otherwise, he wouldn't have tempted him. And similarly... These would not be genuine temptations, and a Hebrews writer would not be able to say he was tempted in all aspects as we were, in Hebrews 4 and verse 1. He would not be able to say that unless Jesus was actually tempted in these instances. Okay, And we kind of just kind of skip over that, but these are real temptations for Jesus. And Satan realizes that, and Jesus realizes that. Um, and, of course, that's a whole other discussion in discussing the humanity and the deity of Christ and the interplay between those two things, which we don't have time to get into this evening, but it's an interesting discussion. But here, here's here's kind of a sub-point here, but it's an important one. This is only the second time that's in Scripture where Satan encounters humanity in a personal way. Okay. The first time, as you may remember, did not turn out so well for us. In Genesis chapter 3, when Satan presents himself to the first Adam, the first Adam was tempted and he gave in and he usurped the reign of God. Remember the temptation? You will be like God. That was the temptation. Kick God off the throne, Adam. Make yourself your own God. Make yourself the end and the means of your own pleasure and happiness and joy. Because you don't need God. Okay, So he was tempted to usurp the reign of God, to break the boundaries of God's reign, to become his own deity, to use his sovereignty for his own pleasure and power. And he gave in to that. Now... Satan is presenting himself at the beginning of another story to as later Paul will refer to in Romans as the second Adam. Jesus. And the second Adam chooses rather to submit to God's purpose and to commit his pleasure and happiness and joy and his power to his good grace. Now this is what this is this is what is interesting. Because in this, I think that we see that God is starting the story over. He's starting the Bible over, if you will. This is the new Genesis. This is how Genesis was supposed to go. This is how it was supposed to be. Humanity choosing God's goodness and love and sovereignly reigning over his creation as his regents, sharing in his love and his pleasure and his fellowship. This is how Genesis was supposed to be. And this hints at God's new creation, that he is beginning in Jesus to redeem the world. And we are given, we are blessed, if you say that, to see how both stories ended. One ended in death and corruption, and the other with life, glory, and victory. And of course, you can read Romans to see that parallel as well. But throughout these temptations, uh, Jesus overcomes them by casting His gaze away from His ability to fulfill His own desires to God's ability to fulfill His desires. And I think that this is an important point in our discussion of of this subject because essentially what temptation does and what sin does is that it questions and rejects, if we give in to that temptation, it questions and then subsequently rejects faith in God's provision and power in this life to sustain and to satisfy it. Every time we are faced with temptation, the question that we are being asked is this Is God enough? Is God enough for you? Or put it this way Do you trust God to make you happy? Do you trust God to fulfill your joy? And every time we face temptation, that question is being asked to us. And every time we give in to temptation, we are answering that question with a resounding no. No, God is not enough. No, I do not trust Him to make me happy. And what this does is that it places temptation not simply as a matter of personal failure or weakness, but of a question about God's role in our life. Who is God to you? Is He enough? Do we really trust Him to fulfill His promise? And again, when we give into temptation, we answer that with no. And many times we think of temptation as, or sin, we say, no, we can't have something good because God said not to. Right? That's generally, I think, maybe how we view sin and temptation. We can't have something that would be enjoyable because God said not to. Okay. That is a very shallow view, I think, of temptation and fighting temptation. Rather, how we should view our struggle with temptation and sin is that God says, don't eat the Twinkies or you're going to spoil Thanksgiving dinner. Right? If you partake of this minor, empty, destitute pleasure, you are foregoing the greater pleasure of me. That is why, how did Jesus overcome the cross? How did He endure the difficulty? The Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, for the joy that was set before Him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He kept His eyes on the joy. As the psalmist says in Psalm 16 and verse 11, in His presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So when I am facing temptation, I must not turn my eyes from pleasure to no pleasure with God, but from a minor pleasure within sin to the greater pleasure of God. It's essentially about fighting desire with desire. And we cut ourselves off short, I think, when we view temptation. And say, "Well, I've got to obey, I've got to obey, I've got to obey, I've got to obey. That's not enough. I don't know about you, but that's not enough for me. I mean, that's what the law did for the Jews, and it wasn't enough. Okay, Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. All right, And they failed pretty miserably at it. So in our struggles, Jesus gives us this example and gives us this power. He has, and I think even within this temptation, He has His eyes set on joy in God. But as we might often answer, again, we might often answer, is God enough? We say no. Jesus says, yes! Yes, he is. He is enough. And in that answer, he gives the devil the first of many defeats, and he establishes himself as the true Messiah. He can both represent God, submitting to his purpose for his power, trusting in his timing and planning, and he can also represent humanity, enduring temptation and sin, and yet overcoming. And so in this we have the culmination uh, that, that Luke plays on this, okay, just so you know in your in your own study. He declares Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man in Luke chapter 3. In the beginning of Luke chapter 4, he shows that he is worthy of this role to fulfill his messianic mission. And then at the end of chapter 4, he declares what his messianic mission will be. And then in five, moving forward, he goes about doing his messianic mission that he has declared in chapter 4. So it all focuses upon Jesus, of course, and what his role is. Okay, so um, if we have time, I'd have some time for questions and comments at the end, if that's okay. Um, But let's talk about some application because this was, um, at least it was told to me that it needed to be applicable, so hopefully this is somewhat applicable for your life. This temptation scene, I think, within Luke and in Matthew 4, have you noticed that there's a difference in the sequence, by the way, in the temptation scene in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4? In Matthew, the, the, when he, he's brought to the pinnacle of the temple at the end, in Luke, it's the second temptation. And I don't, think that's a, I don't think that's a discrepancy. I think that Luke is using his inspirational authority. There's an intentional purpose in why he kind of switches these. Um, And I think that that was understood within the early church. But this temptation scene gives us one of our greatest tools in fighting sin. And I think that that tool is clarity. It's clarity. Because the better we know our foe, the greater prepared we can be. So what do we learn about temptation and our struggle against it? Well, number one, I think we learn that Satan has good timing. Satan has good timing. Temptation often arises when we are physically exhausted. As we notice, Jesus has been fasting. Or we have made grand devotions to God after his baptism. Temptation, at least in my life, presents itself in its most potent form when I am physically or emotionally or mentally exhausted or when I have made grand devotions of faith to God. Remember what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7? He said, I have found it to be a law that when I desire to do good, what? Evil lies close at hand. Have you ever had that moment where you had been struggling with a particular sin and Sunday the preacher preaches a great sermon and you are just so convicted about doing better this week and then all of a sudden on Monday it's like Satan has brought in the Calvary? You know, all of a sudden that, that struggle is even greater. Well, I think that there's a pattern that we see here. In both of these instances, we are often vulnerable. We are physically, emotionally fatigued, either from stress or bitterness or sorrow. And it leads us to let down our spiritual barriers at times. And grand spiritual devotions often cause us to think that we are stronger than we are. And so we go out puffed out with our chest and ready to go, and Satan trips us on our way out of the church building. I, I want to say just a quick note about bitterness because I have uh, personally struggled with this in my own life. And I and the Lord taught me a lesson, taught, is still teaching me, a lesson about how dangerous bitterness can be. The Hebrews writer warns about the the, the, the root of bitterness, he says, and by it, he says, many have become defiled. And I, I just... I used to kind of skip over that verse and just not uh, just not read it, You know, or read it but not really have any personal application. But let me tell you something. If you allow bitterness to grow in your life, whether it's towards your spouse, whether it's towards your parents, whether it's towards your kids or your coworkers, what or God, if you allow bitterness to take root in your life, I can almost guarantee you if you do not pull it up, you will one day fall away from Christ. Because it is an insipid evil that reaches down into your soul. And I think maybe our greatest struggle with this can be with our spouses if you're married tonight. Bitterness can creep into your marriage when you least expect it. And it allows you to justify things that you otherwise would not justify. Whether it's treating them a certain way or giving into to some temptation, whatever it might be, you justify it because of bitterness. Because of some unmet expectation or some unanswered desire. And that is why I think Paul says in Colossians 3 to husbands, he says, husbands, don't be bitter towards your wives. Okay? Don't be bitter towards your wives. And I think that uh, there's maybe a reason that he doesn't say that to the wives. He tells the wives, respect your husbands, because maybe that's a struggle that women have in the relationship with respecting their husbands. And men have a struggle with having bitterness towards their wives. And each of those situations has to be handled correctly. You know, um, it's not genuine happiness, men. If we're only happy when our wives are doing what we want them to do, right? We're not truly being Christ-like in that. And women, it's not really submission if you only submit to your husband when he tells you something that you agree with, right? That's not submission. That's agreement. Okay. It's only submission when you submit when he tells you something you don't agree with. Okay. Um, and so. Bitterness is a, is, a, is a way in which Satan inserts himself. So all of this goes back to Satan has good timing. And what this means is that we have to learn moments where we are most weak and vulnerable and make sure that we have extra guards up, such as accountability. Um, there are, there, you may have noticed there are, places, there are places that you struggle with temptation more so than others. And some of those places you might not can avoid. And you need to be aware, you need to be mindful that when you go into that place that uh, temptation is going to be more difficult and you need accountability. You need someone to personally hold you accountable if you're struggling with this. To where you, you go to someone you respect and say, I need you, and, I, and I've done this before, to where I, I will say to someone I respect, I need you to check on me at the end of the day. Okay, And I do that when I'm feeling strong. Because I know when I'm feeling weak, I'm not going to want to text or call that person and say that. I need you to check on me at the end of the day to make sure I'm okay. Okay, That accountability. All right? We have to be aware of that because Satan has good timing. Number two, we, we learn that Scripture is for sin fighting. Scripture is for sin fighting. To fight off temptation, Jesus uses the sword of the Spirit to anchor himself deeply within the promises of God. It isn't that they are some magical uh, incantation, but what they do is, is they point Jesus back to God as the source of His true joy and hope. And so it allows Him, as I mentioned earlier, to refocus on what truly matters and what truly will bring Him great And it's called the Spirit's sword for a reason. The Spirit uses God's Word to slay sin within us. meditation and daily reading are an indispensable tool in fighting temptation. Let me say this very clearly and, and, and easily understood. You will never, you will never overcome temptation without Scripture. It will not happen. It just is an impossibility. Because the, the, the sword of the Spirit is what slays sin within us. Meditating more fully on the promises that God has given to us. Promises of joy and promises of wrath. Sometimes those promises of joy aren't enough. Sometimes I need to remember, as the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after we've all received a knowledge of the truth, there remains no moral sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery fury which will devour the adversaries. That really helps me in temptation sometimes. Okay? The fear of the Lord. Um, fourthly, or thirdly, I can count, I really can. Thirdly, Sin is a symptom. Sin is a symptom. Now, while sin is a transgression of God's law, what I think all of this shows us is that sin is really a symptom of a greater issue. And the issue is idolatry. It's idolatry. If you go to Romans chapter 1 and you look at the descent of depravity that Paul catalogs of the world there, the number one sin, is the domino effect for all the other sins is a failure to worship God. They worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who's blessed forever. And then that's just the first domino that takes them down into unnatural affection of homosexuality eventually. And so, just as Adam asserted the self over God. And the Israelites created a golden calf. So our sin is the worship of idols that we have created in our life. And your and your and your and your idols can be a variety of different things. You know, and sometimes we think of uh, uh, sex can be an idol, money can be an idol, relationships can be an idol, your family can be an idol. In fact, I have I have learned. Um, that many times that is one of the most insidious idols is our family, okay? Um, I'm surprised at how many of us Christians actually don't want Jesus to come back. You, you would be surprised. I recently posted on Facebook, and I said, you know, really the thoughts of a worldly Christian are, I want Jesus to come back, just not right now, right? I want him to come back, just don't come back now, right? Right? And of course, I had some get on there say, "Well, I like to pray for my loved ones. I don't think that those prayers are mutually exclusive. To pray for the ret- if the apostles can pray for the return of Christ, having loved ones that were lost, Paul says that he desired for his fellow kinsmen to be saved, and yet he was still desiring for the Lord to return. But the other issue I had is that people are getting on there and say, "Well, yes, but I like my life now. Can't he come at the end of that? What's wrong with wanting that?" <laughs> the The wrong thing about that is that Jesus doesn't play second fiddle to anybody or anything, nothing. And, 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 I, and I, there was a question that was asked that kind of focused, made me think about this. If you got to heaven and if it was just you and Jesus, none of your loved ones were there, none of your friends were there, just you and Jesus, would that be enough? Would that be enough? So sin is a symptom of idolatry. And fourthly and quickly, satisfaction isn't found in the bread. Bread was a symbol many times of the the main source of calories for the Jewish people in the first century. And so it was kind of substantive of daily life. That's really what it became a symbol of, daily life. Of waking up in the morning, getting a paycheck, going to the market, buying bread, going home, and going to bed. And that's what most of us live for, is the bread. That's that's all we live for, is the bread. The immediate moment of passing satisfaction, the weekly paycheck, our hobbies and our habits. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. They're blessed and good, but in and of themselves, they cannot satisfy and that is why Jesus says, it's not by bread alone. Is he saying that man doesn't need bread? No, that's not what he's saying. Man needs bread, but not bread alone. And we have entire generations that have been fostered with this idea that bread alone is enough. And it's not. It's not. Jesus says that there is more to life than the bread. Life is far greater and grander than that. Life is about God. And we, when we give in a temptation, we forget that truth just a little bit more, and we believe that lie. Now, real quickly, and then maybe we can have some time for comments or questions. Have any of you seen the, um, the trailer or maybe heard of the new movie, The Dark Tower, that is in theaters right now? called The Dark Tower. It's a, it's a, it's a rendition of a Stephen King um, novel. I've never read it. I'm not a huge Stephen King fan. But, um, but there's a character in there called the man in black. And it's played by Matthew McConaughey. And I was reading an article recently, and it said why Matthew McConaughey was initially drawn to that role. And the reason he said that he was initially drawn to that role was because there was absolutely nothing redeemable about the man in black, meaning that he was just pure evil. See, it's a, const- it's, it's a, it's a, a new fad in, in most television series now to, make the, to kind of justify the evil that someone is doing, right? They, they have a reason for what they've done and kind of try and give them a chance of redeeming themselves. Well, Matthew McConaughey is saying, I didn't want to play that kind of I wanted to play someone who is absolutely irredeemable. Now, there might be some of you here this evening that think that you're playing that role, the role of someone who is absolutely irredeemable the role of someone who has rejected God's promises and purposes so long in your life that you can't possibly hope to turn back to Him and live a life of faithfulness. Brethren, that is not the voice of God that you're hearing. That is the voice of the adversary who wants to convince you that there is no hope. But brethren, as long as you have breath in your lungs, there is hope. There is hope of repentance. There is hope of forgiveness and love. And the Lord is always waiting. There's a a passage that I have memorized in Isaiah 54 and verse 10, when I am despaired. Um, And he says there, God says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. What's God saying there? The mountains will crumble away before I stop loving you. The Lord is waiting, 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 9, for you to turn your life over to Him. And if we follow in the steps of Christ and we look to Him as our pattern for overcoming temptation and sin, victory, the Spirit of Christ within us promises victory over temptation, victory over sin. And it is possible, I'm telling you tonight, that it is possible to crucify the passions of the flesh within your life. Now, I do see some kiddos coming out, so I'm guessing I could probably start winding it down. Does anybody have any quick comments?